welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the favorite jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, arranger, and piano player from Connecticut, Jorel A. Martin. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Joel A. Martin with us, sir. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Give the people a short intro about yourself, then we're going to go right into it. Okay. Well, I'm a classical and jazz pianist, a composer, arranger. Uh, I've spent many years uh, working as a, a songwriter, arranger, orchestrator uh, for Polygram Records, for Mercury Records. Um, I've toured uh, for 11 years with Kathleen Battle in opera and jazz and everything else you can imagine. And uh, the list goes on and on and on of music that I like to create. Um, Because in the end, uh, jazz, classical, pop, rap, it is music to me. And you use the power of music and all the skills that are required to make great music that people will want to listen to. Um, And from that point, we can go on from there. Hmm. And everyone, just so you know, we were talking before we recorded and he had me like memorized for like five minutes and I'm like, yeah, we need to start recording. So (laughs) (laughs) the basic stuff, more the background stuff. So you started playing classical, correct? And then you jumped into jazz. So what made the switch actually occur for you? Well, the, the the switch was pretty natural. My father was the band director at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. So from age 10 through 17, uh, I would had the abilities to, you know, when I wasn't in regular pro- uh, public school, to go to the university and participate in the marching band, the stage band, the concert band, the show band. Uh, I wrote... Uh, music for them, did lots of different kinds of arrangements. So music just kind of, it just kind of evolved, honestly. Um, as far as jazz was concerned, um, during this same time frame, I also went to New York uh, a lot of times uh, for work because it just so happens that my, you know, my uncle at the time was vice president of Polygram Records, Mercury, the R&B division. And I honestly want to know what it was like to be a session player and a writer. And so one of the first sessions I was with was with a rapper. And the uh, the producer came to me and said, Hey, young blood, uh, uh, do you know uh, do you know how to play? I said, Well, of course I of course I can. He says, Yeah, do you play jazz? I said, Well, no, I haven't, but you can play. Well, yes, but yeah, but I haven't played jazz, but you can play young blood, right? I'm going to teach you how to play. And then he, and he sat me down and taught me the blues scale and said, I've got this track that I want you to play on. And back then, you know, we're talking 1978 or something like that, you know, Studio time was given out like it was candy. So we had lots of hours for me to figure out how to take B-flat 7 to E-flat 7 and just riff and 
create things. And, uh, and I was forever grateful for that because two things happened. One, uh, I discovered that I love improvising. Mm -hmm. And two, I discovered the world of studio composition and studio work, uh, both of which uh, is a central part of my musical upbringing and my career for that matter. So a question on that. So who is the rapper? I'm just curious before I ask the next one. Uh, Curtis Blow. And you're just going to leave that out? Yep. Yep. Which song was it? Uh, I can't tell you. Oh, okay, fine. Be that way. Was it yeah, a main yeah. one that I'm thinking of? Well, it's uh, it's up there, yes. Does it have to do with a car and a car stopping? No. no. <laughs> does it it's have not to do with one. something that Steph Curry does? No. Oh, okay, just no. asking. <laughs> But you know, um, uh, the 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 truth of the matter is, um, you know, all of these experiences that I've had, you know, it, it takes way too long to to even get into most of them because every single one of these experiences are major building blocks in my life. It wasn't like it was one central thing and then five years passes. Uh, during the time ten through seventeen. That is where I learned everything that I know about playing, about writing, about arranging. Um, because, you know, not only did I learn the, the beginnings of improv improvisation, but I also learned about songwriting. I learned about construction. I learned classical uh, harmonies and writing and construction and how integrated these two things are, no matter what the, what the genre of music is. Like, you cannot get away from the very nature that if you listen to a great solo of Ornette Coleman, there is form and structure. And within that form and structure is also creativity in, in that moment that, you know, you can just turn it around and move things around in order to create this long-lasting line. And, and to me, that's no different than classical music and writing. Because when you're in that moment or, or when you are rendering that music live, mm -hmm. you know, not as a practicing, you know, person, but as a real artist, you have to be able to think on your feet, on your toes, not to just play the notes that are there, but everything that's in, inside of those notes, the space between the notes, the silence. Um, those are things that every artist, and it doesn't matter what the genre is, they have an, a unique and acute understanding of form, space, time, rhythm, melodic, uh, um, creativity and adherence to the song because if you don't understand the song you won't be able to explain it to anybody else okay. and that's just me but since i'm still you know surprised that you were working with big names from back then don't you feel like artists today don't really have that opportunity just to jump into the recording studio with certain acts don't you think that's another problem we have Oh, uh, yes, it is. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, the things that I grew up with are things that most people will not have. And so I'm very aware 
of how blessed I am um, to have had all these multitude of experiences. I mean, I mean, if you asked me what is the greatest musical time of my life, mm-hmm. I would probably say Kathleen Battle in the last 11 years and the seven years I spent at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. That's where I cut my teeth in the very beginning about everything that I do. And had I not had those experiences, as well as being able to play, you know, competitions and solo with orchestras and go to New York and record and play, um, things like the Cab Calloway Orchestra that I spent almost 11 years as music director for, or playing the full Monty uh, on Broadway or the ride down Mount Morgan with Patrick Stewart. Uh, these are, these things would never have happened had I not had the building blocks. And at the same time, it is a continuum that goes on to this very day because although I stopped playing uh, with Kathleen about a year ago because of the pandemic, uh, the lessons and the experiences that I shared with with her on the road, going around the world, playing. And, and she was not a classical singer. Of course, she did all the repertoire, but she also did my favorite things and gospel and spiritual and jazz things. And she wasn't trying to be Ella Fitzgerald. She was just trying to be an artist which she was. And and that standard of excellence, that is something that, you know, you cannot put a price tag on that. And and yes, you have to earn your way to that because had I not had all these experiences, uh, a guy named Bob Satan would never have introduced me to Kathleen. And it turns out that Kathleen was looking for something a lot more than just a classical pianist. She wanted a pianist who was an artist who could just, in a moment, just switch gears and just be that, whatever it was that, that was called for musically. Okay, Joel, and that re- a know. question on that. So the kid that's coming from, because you're a SUNY graduate also, that's yes. coming out of a SUNY school or even Maryland, University of Maryland, how are they going to get that repertoire? How are they going to build, not even repertoire, how are they going to get that experience? What would you suggest to them? Well, I'm going to suggest to them uh, pretty much what I had to do. I mean, fortunately, I had two parents that were both musicians, uh, so they were there to help me. Uh, But even if I didn't have that, I mean, there are lots of times that, I had to go out on my own and just, you know, between your teenage years and going to age 22 or 23, those are the critical periods of your life. That's the time to do everything that you can possibly do. And I did. I mean, I can honestly say I did lots of musical theater. I did lots of jazz, lots of classical, lots of pop music, lots of trouble funk, you know, and Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers. As far as I'm concerned, Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers is just as dope to me as 
Bach and Beethoven and Cara McRae and Duke Ellington. And you have to get into all of that music, not just a little bit, but you have to expend your body, your soul, your energy so that the music becomes your own. And there is no substitute for that, whether or not you learn that uh, from YouTube videos, of which I did quite a lot of, you know, listening to along the way, you know, whatever it took for me to soak up music and then learning to read and learning, you know, to understand all the chord progressions and all the substitutions and then try to find those substitutions within Stravinsky, of which there's quite a lot. I understand uh, that, but that, okay, that's a whole other thing. Let's get into that actually too, okay? Okay. Because if you're doing jazz and you're doing classical, like jazz market's like 1% of total sales. Classical yes. is a little more, believe it or not. So you're really yeah. fighting for probably 2% of the market. And we're not going to even start with classical because if you're coming out of undergrad, even at Juilliard, yeah. oh, yeah. you got your masters at Juilliard, I even say, and you're killing it. You're not killing yeah. it compared to those people that are in the circuit. Well, okay, you have a very valid point. So, so how are you going to be that person that composes it? Not even composes it. If you're just a person that is going to replay Bach, how are you going to convince someone to buy your album over Yo-Yo Ma's album, over Sarah Chang's album, over well, Lang Lang? Mm -hmm. Then, then I'm going to come very clean with you. Um, I believe in the power of people. I believe that people are the engines that make things happen, and that it is not necessarily my industry that has propelled my career. And so, over the years, starting from when I was first, you know, into music at age seven, I've been making connections. Oops, my, my headphones just went off. Okay. I've been making connections with people from all backgrounds in classical, in jazz, and, and, and just continue to develop and network. But now I have to come to the truth. And the truth is, is that if you don't have anything to talk about, there's nothing to talk about. And I know that sounds hardcore, but it is absolutely true. Because the older that I've gotten, if whatever it is that you are quote-unquote selling to somebody, if it is not real and authentic and something that has valid, you know, validity and merit, relevancy, that's a big term with me. If it doesn't have relevancy to what's going on in the world, you might very well be the world's greatest musician, but your music will never be heard. And so um, what I have learned over my years is that in the beginning, I thought I was just going to be a classical pianist. Well, 40 years later, the truth is, is that I'm neither classical nor jazz nor all these things. Now it has just evolved to a place where it is just pure music. It's the joy of music. And that joy, I have been selling, if we have to use a, a, a commercial term, 
I've been selling this for years from the very beginning, and it is based on quality, 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 because everybody knows when you are faking it. And I absolutely will not be a faker for anything that I do, even if that means I will not join the pantheon of the great pianist of classical or the great pianist of jazz. I will be the great person that is me. And, and hopefully that will be something that is worthy of someone else's attention. And at the same time that I say this, you also have to do the work of getting your music out there, of networking, of bringing the music that is inside of you to your everyday experience because you never know who you're going to run into. And I'll give you a great example because you can't make this kind of stuff up. Okay, go, go, go. Um, I went to Tanglewood as a, as a pianist, and during that year, Delphio Marcellus was there. And, and we, you know, we became friends. Uh, we were colleagues. Um, uh, people wanted to compare the two of us together, but I absolutely resisted that because he's a great trombonist, and I'm a great pianist, and we should... Just be happy with that. It just so happens that during that summer, my roommate, Benjamin Loeb, was a very shy pianist. He probably thought I was crazy, you know, when I walked into, you know, the dorm room and introduced myself. He probably thought I was the craziest guy in the world. And yet, over because of that summer, we managed to stay in touch with each other. And over the years, I found out that his sister is Lisa Loeb. And, and, you know, one thing led to another, and I ended up in Dallas to see the family and to meet Lisa Loeb. And, and um, at that time, she said, you know, I think I would like to be like you, write some songs, have a band. And then a few years later, I looked on MTV. And, and she's lost in emotions. And I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I, see this, I see this girl with these nerdy glasses from the 60s, 70s. And I said, God, she looks awfully familiar. And then it says Lisa Loeb and Seven Stories. And I called Ben up and I said, Ben, you'll never guess who I saw on MTV. And she's and he said, yes, Lisa just got really big, and and so years later, I saw her um, in New York, and she said, you know, I'm so happy that I met you, because you inspired me back then, and that's about as good as it gets, to me. That's as good as it gets. Just that's just as good as winning a giant award because it means that 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 the work that the ethic um that the music that the the person who i am that that made a difference in someone's life and it might be a small difference or it might be a, a big one it doesn't matter to me what matters to me is 
is making that connection, not knowing if anything will come from it. And that is, really is the secret of, of my life and my success. You know, I, I, I go out and, and I'm always trying to make things happen. But as I get older, I go, you know. Okay. But why didn't you ever do anything with her? It never came up, honestly. Okay. Um, uh, we talked about it. Um, but I'm a firm believer that if things are meant to be, they will be. Um, and, and, and you can push and push and push to make things happen. And I'm not saying you shouldn't push to try to make it happen. But if it doesn't, it just means it's not supposed to happen there. That's not the person. Uh, maybe, maybe this upcoming year, we will do something. We've been talking about it. Um, but okay, so if it, if it doesn't happen, that's okay know, that's too. Fair, that's fair, that's fair. It's just, this gives me the opportunity to ask about how you ended up writing for one of my favorite Broadway composers. Oh, Alan? Yes, yes, the guy who actually completed the MasterCard, you know, finished all yeah. four, the Trinity. <laughs> That's right. Well, Alan is, um, well, it's such an, an incredibly long story, and uh, but it's an interesting story because uh, when I was in college, I played for a senior recital of a trombonist named Phil Sasson. And at that time, he was dating a woman, Chloe, who would become his wife. And she also is an amazing music director and plays multiple instruments and is an amazing conductor. If she had wanted to, she could have been, you know, a big Broadway conductor. That just wasn't what she wanted to do. It just so happens that Phil and Alan Menken were the best of friends since the sandbox at age four. And they have been friends up until, you know, Phil's passing. And just before Phil passed, um, Alan and I sort of became de facto godfathers to he and Chloe's two daughters. And I had done a couple of things with uh, Alan, you know, just doing concerts, you know, live concerts and things. Um, but it never really came to anything. Um, and that was like maybe 15 years. So it's not like, you know, it's not like I didn't want it to happen. The timing wasn't there. And the opportunity wasn't there. And uh, so after Phil passed, uh, a little bit after that, I said to... Alan, I saw him one day, and, and I said, you know, I have this idea for a jazzical tribute to you. And he said, ah, um, sure, um, um, I'll be happy to listen to your idea. So we scheduled a meeting, and this was my first meeting with him outside of family and outside of, you know, just normal things that we see in Westchester County. <laughs> And I went in there, and and he said, ah, so after all the pleasantries, so, Joel, um, let's listen to some of your ideas. I said, no, we're not going to do this. We're going to start with this. 
and I pulled out a binder that was about two inches thick, and I said, I wrote Jazzical Meets Mencken. And he opened it and looked at it and said, oh, my God, you wrote all this out? Because it was a hodgepodge of music, classical, jazz, musical, theater, whatever it was that came to my mind's eye, I wrote this down. And that's what I presented to him. And I looked at him and I said, Alan, you don't think I'm going to sit here and waste your time with pleasantries if we don't have anything to talk about. And that's how we started. That's how Jazz School Meets Mencken started. And even then, I would probably say he was probably curious to see what was going to happen. Okay, okay. Because so, with someone like him, you have to go big or you go home. You know, it's not like you're going to do like a little trio thing and say, yes, um, Alan Menken, yes, I would like you to be a part of this. Like, that's not big enough for him, for what his legacy is all about. If I'm going to pay tribute to that, then I have to do my part to create that bigness, but not be Disney. And so I brought in the Gay Men's Chorus of L.A., who I met on a ship, uh, you know. And then I called up uh, uh, Christine Petty and Liz Calloway, who was the voice of Anastasia for uh, uh, for Disney, and um, and uh, uh, a couple of other people, and I, who I found on Facebook. And normally, you would never find anybody on Facebook. Because, you know, there's a whole bunch of crackpots, but I started my letters with them by saying, I am not a crackpot. And this is my record of what I'm doing and what I've done. And I'm asking for your help because you are a great artist and I know that you will do an incredible job on this project. And that's where we started from. And, and that is just one example of hundreds of things that i've done that it's because you know it's a it's a shared commonality of respect and then the timing was right and things worked so um jasco meets Mencken took about a year and a half to produce mm -hmm. and i had all these luminaries all over it because because i had this vision of what I thought would be really just wonderful to listen to. So, the, so to give you an example uh, of one of the songs from the record, uh, there's a song called Cold Enough to Snow, and it's written by Alan and Stephen Schwartz. And Liz Calloway first uh, told me about this song while we were rehearsing. And I said to her, you know, this is in the key of C major, but I don't hear this song in C major. And she said, well, what do you mean? Anyone has ever sang this song in C? I said, I hear this in the minor. Mm. And so I said, just please, just go with me for this for a few seconds. And all of a sudden, cold enough to snow became snowy and depressing and beautiful. And then I set this with, with the Berkeley World String Orchestra. 
uh, because I figured I wanted some people who were just going to play, you know, and just make music from this. And, and now it's very hard for these two artists and the composers who wrote them to hear their music any That's other way easy. except for the, in the A minor yeah, version. A minor, you dropped it. Yeah, okay. You know, it, 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 I, like I mean, that. it was magical when it first happened. And I, and I still feel that magic when I listen to it and when others listen to it. That, that's the goal here. Uh, uh, this is what we use all of our skills for. So whatever it takes, that's, what I'm, that's where I'm willing to go. But if I had never had all these experiences, I could never have put them all into a jazz school meets Mencken or any other project for that matter. Okay. This is a question then. I'm, and then we're going to talk about this album of yours. Cause I'm just curious. Okay. It's not every day I get that type of mixture with a legend. <laughs> so when you actually put it together, did it work out the way you expected it to work or did it actually fall apart at any area and he had to change it? Cause I know you came in with your template, the whole book. Yeah. Any major changes you made to it? Uh, no, the only changes that were made to it actually had nothing to do with with the music. Uh, it was just about uh, the timing of of putting it out. Um, uh, the music, you know, I think it stands up to the standard of excellence that people like Alan are used to. But it is also the standard of excellence that I'm used to because I'm never going to put something out if it doesn't speak to the heart, if it doesn't espouse uh, the, the greatest amount of technical abilities and musical wizardry and magic. It's the magic that we're trying to uncover. And I think... Um, the Jazzical Meets Mencken project, it may not have been a, a big success, but it was very instrumental in my life because, you know, I really wanted to do this project and, and I believe that I earned the right to, to have the master associated with this. And, and I know he didn't do it because because we're friends, you know, you would never do that unless it's a, it's a music thing. It's an artistic thing. And, and, and he is an artist. He is an artist bar none. And I know some people might, they might be, uh, they might not be on the same page with that, but I'm sorry. Anyone that writes songs where millions of people are listening to it, in the same way that the Beatles or Michael Jackson or Duke Ellington or Stevie Wonder, you know, those songs revolve around themselves. And that is artistry. No, you know? It is. Just the fact that his songs been around for more than 10 years, I think it's artistry. Yeah. And, you know, his music, like many others, has influenced generations of people. Agreed. And, and, and there is something to be said for that. That is artistry. Um, it's no different than any other great, you know, musician or project 
uh, I just hope that I will have that in my own way. <laughs> okay, so your album, Jessica, let's go, Comets? Comitas. Comitas, dang. No, it's okay. No, it's, probably these I, names are bad. But yes. I didn't even know what Comitas was three years ago. Tell the people what Comitas is. Komitas is an Armenian monk uh, who witnessed the genocide of Armenia firsthand, like many others in 1915. Uh, but not before he went into every village of Armenia and painstakingly wrote out uh, some 5,000 of their ethnic folk songs. Now, when I say write out, I mean all the rhythms the harmonies, the melodies, because, you know, the, uh, because it wasn't based upon a 13-tone a, a, a Western scale, he had to in, invent a way to capture this. Uh, and so he is uh, credited as one of the first ethnomusicologists ever. Um, and... Armenians revere him because, you know, out of those 5,000 works, some 2,600 have remained even after the genocide occurred. And so um, that music sits within the Armenian people uh, since basically in utero. Um, uh, it, you've, you've never seen people, um, a group of people that love their music so much that they teach it as a matter of, you know, this is the way it is to their kids and their kids and their kids. Uh, that's, that's Komitas. Okay, so how does that apply to this album? Well, I met uh, the name Komitas um, at an Armenian and Russian-speaking uh, dinner some three and a half years ago. And they heard me, the people there, they heard me play jazzical music, and they said, ah, since you play so well and with this jazzical thing, it would sound really great if you took the music of Komitas and Armenian music. And I didn't know, and so they gave me my little crash course in Komitas, and at the time, I thought it was kind of a cool idea, but it didn't really stick. Uh, a few months later, I played a Central Asian-themed concert in New York City, and this Armenian singer came out and sang one piece, 90 seconds long, of Komitas. And I sat in the back of the room, and I've, I've told this story but many times, but my story is still the same. I sat in the back of the room and said, my God, what is this? I just couldn't believe I was listening to it. I'd never heard anything like this. But it touched me on some very primordial level. And, um, you know, I got to meet the singer. And as a result of this, her family and my family, we are all great friends and our kids play with each other. And uh, several months later, uh, fast forwarding, I found myself with a free day at home. And I said, you know, 
this is the day that I'm going to listen to Comitas. And I went right on YouTube and found Armenian music and Comitas. And I thought I would listen to 30 seconds of this or 30 minutes. And I ended up listening to it for hours. I couldn't get enough of this. And so I started setting some of these ethnic folk songs to Jazzical. And uh, then I sent it to the opera singer the, who initially turned me on to this. And I said, um, oh, before I, forget, I don't know. Tell people what Jazzical is, because I know what that is, and I was just assuming ah, everybody knows. Yeah, that, that's okay. my, my mistake, everyone. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. Jazzical is the marriage of classical and jazz. It is the intersection of these two. And the starting point for musical exploration it is not a classical or a jazz thing. It is a music thing. And the only difference between these two uh, is one of subtlety. Um, I do not destroy the song, no matter what goes on. Uh, if you don't understand the song, if you don't understand the construction of that tune, then you cannot render this in any kind of serious kind of way. Uh, I think that is what the difference of jazzical is with most other people who explore with classical and jazz-tinged things. I am one of those people that believe that you have to truly understand and appreciate and play it in order to be able to get it. Because just slapping on a couple of jazz dominant seventh chords is not a jazz musician at all. And actually, anyone that thinks that, in my opinion, um, they're not taking the genre very seriously. And, and, and I take it very seriously because I don't want there to be this disconnect between jazz and classical audiences. They should be able to appreciate and hear what it is that's going on and hopefully uh, like it. So that's that's basically the genesis of jazzical and uh, how this came about is probably the most interesting story because it was a crisis of faith in my career. I was 29 years old and I could not figure out why I did not have the classical career that I thought I was going to have or the jazz career that I thought I was going to have. And, and, I, and honestly, I, I thought, well, maybe I have reached the end of my artistic journey. And unless I find something that triggers, you know, the engine inside of me to keep creating, that maybe I was not supposed to do this anymore and that I should leave music. And, and I really felt, I really felt this and it, it didn't matter all the accolades and the awards and the tours and the records and, and like none of that mattered to me. What mattered to me was I just needed to find my own voice. And it wasn't until that summer uh, in, when I was 29 where I was practicing in a church in Portchester, New York. And my girlfriend at the time said, wow, 
you know, I hear you moving between classical and jazz and musical theater and anything else, and you do it without even thinking twice about it. It's like it's a it's like a magical type of thing that you do. There's no thought. You just go there and then you become it. She said you should consider writing something like this. And I said, nobody's going to be interested in this. And she said, I don't think so. I think people will be. And so she forced me to write. And what came out of that were two Chopin nocturnes mm -hmm. and a Baroque piece that um, I tethered with um, A Night in Tunisia by uh, Dizzy Gillespie. And, and it just kind of threw in all kinds of things. And she said, you really have something here. And I said, well, all right, well, maybe that's true. But you can't just have a musical something. You have to be able to call it something. And so I looked at all kinds of different words like classic jazz, which I hated. And I knew when it came out, that it just wasn't the Wait, right classic thing. classic jazz you hated? Oh, classic jazz. Oh, classic. It just didn't sound right. Okay. It, it, yeah, it just didn't, I mean, it could have, but it just didn't sound regal enough or refined enough. And then jazzical came out, and that just kind of falls right off the tongue. When you say jazzical, it's like classical, but jazz is on the front. And I went out the next day and trademarked this. Uh, I went to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and I filled it in, and I went to see a, you know, a high-power lawyer for trademarks, and I knew I couldn't afford her. And I told her about my idea, and she said, well, before you say anything, why don't you come in here and tell me your story? And so I went in, and she has been my lawyer ever since. And, and on top of this, she made um, she answered two primary challenges to the meaning of jazzical to the patent and trademark uh, examiners and got me this registered trademark. And then I realized, once I got this, mm -hmm. that I have to create the body of work that gives meaning to this name. Because now I thought I found who I think I am, which was all the things I did before, but now I don't have to segment them in a way that when I was growing up, you know, I had classical over here, and then jazz was over here, and this was over here. Now it is integrated as one thing under one banner, and then I just created eight more records uh, of this starting with solo piano and moving to trio, quartet, uh, orchestra, choir. Um, uh, there is a, a Russian-themed, a Brazilian-themed one, uh, you know, where I got to really express all my various interests and things that I love to play. Uh, because I don't play music or create music that I don't know in both forms. That's a, also a trademark of jazzical. Um, you know, I know both of them. I know them like I know my name. And so that gives me a, 
a certain sense of authenticity without making a big deal about it because in the end it's the music that matters um and all that brings me back to um the latest record uh jazz called comitas and comitas was just another avenue of expression but with with music i'd never heard of i mean up until three and a half years ago I had no idea what Armenian music was or who Komitas was. And now, even to this very day, I feel like it is something new and brand, you know, brand spanking new that I get to explore and love and take in. And I get to apply this jazzical standard to all of us it's classical, it's jazz, it's it's whatever anyone wants to get out of it. It's kind of like listening to the Beatles' White Album. You know, when you listen to the Beatles' White Album, you will always hear something that you didn't hear before. That's because they just kind of put it in there, uh, all these different elements, and then assembled it in a way that that the listener is invited to to partake in. And that's what I feel about Jazzical Komitas. I feel that this record is not just for Armenians. It's for people like you and me, who otherwise would have no contact or interest in ever finding out this music. And um, I just didn't know at the time when I was creating this that there will be such a groundswell of activity. Um, it's really is a blessing because, um, well, one, I was never expecting it. And two, relatively speaking, my heart was very pure. I would go and make these settings and I would send them to, you know, this opera singer. And, and she would say, well, I know you don't speak Armenian. Do you know what this song is about? And I said, no, I just looked at the score. The score tells me what I should, I should be thinking about. And then she would explain to me what the meaning of the song is. And she said, well, for someone who doesn't know any Armenian, you have captured in many ways the soul of the song. And that was a high compliment for me because... One, I, I didn't know, um, you know, but I didn't want to destroy the song because, you know, the song touched me. So the goal is not to, is not to destroy the song. The goal is to uplift the song. And then you use all the tools that you have in your arsenal to create, you know, that foundation and to build the house of which this music can sit in and dwell in. And um, uh, it's kind of the way I like to work. Um, I don't like to learn everything uh, mm -hmm. up front uh, because I think it takes away from, uh, from the immediacy of creation. You know, but I, I think I'm lucky in this sense because... I listen to so much music and I read so much music, you know, that 
after a while, you know, you can see where things ebb and flow. And and then you and then you then you just keep using it. You keep applying it. So um Jazz Comitas is a very special project to me. Um, because I think it just speaks to the human emotion. Uh, and and I think it has relevancy in the world that we live in. And the relevancy of things is a really big issue with me. Because if it's not relevant these days, it's not real. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like. Okay. Just the only thing I would ask about is like some of the solo piano tracks that you were doing. I'm not gonna butcher this. Art in Art I'm Sohak. Uh-huh. Uh I'm Sohak. Yeah, that's yes. completely wrong. Okay. But anyway. No, that's okay. <laughs> oh, it's cool. That one felt more literally like a classical straight ahead thing. Not really jazzy. Well, if you if you look at if you listen to the chords that are under that are under it, uh, imagine if I had a piano, bass, and drums, and we were using that exact same set of chords, you would have a very different feeling about it, even though those chords are still the same. So, uh, yes, I, one could say, and and I think it's an accurate statement that it has more of a classical thing. However, if you look at what I'm actually playing, because I did that in one take, so it's not like I went and did, you know, 12 different versions and just kind of put it together. I said, ah, oh, I love this song. I want to create something that really speaks to the heart. And, and so, you know, when all of a sudden, when you have a chord... It's like a D minor chord over a B flat, you know, first inversion. That's the first one. And then the second chord, that turns into F sharp minor seventh. Mm -hmm. That gives you a whole different thing. That's not a classical thing. That's just some funky stuff that came out. And then and then and then I went and went from there to the E diminished seven yeah. to the a seven back to it's a regular two five one but i'm not playing it like that i just hear it like that okay that's fair I yeah no no no, 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 no no it's cool it's just, i was I'm, saying that i, I was I'm open. straight 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 so yes i heard the two five one in there i saw what you were playing there but i still heard it overhead like over it still felt more classical than me than jazz, but yeah. I do get what you're saying on the head. If it had a bass hitting the root of all that, it would probably be a lot different. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay, fair. So, so <laughs> I, I was wrong. Fair. Yes. So no, no, no. It's a very valid com and 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 the, see, actually, you're making my point for me, sir. You're making the point that yes, we hear things in all kinds of ways, and so the next time you listen to this you'll actually be focusing on actually what I played versus the, the, the overall picture of this. 
And so you might find something different because the frame of reference is different. But that's what music is all about. You're not supposed to say, oh, this is jazz and this is classical. I, I didn't mean it like it, that. And trust me, I don't <laughs> definitely don't see it that way at all. Like this yeah, know, jazz has I to know. be this way. Uh, nah. Yeah, but lots of people do. Uh, most and, people, and, 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 I mean, it, I don't want to rip on any critics or anybody like that. But yeah, there are a lot of people who do. I agree with you on that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that was actually the very basis of why jazzical was invented. So the intellectual argument for um, jazzical is the composers of that time, they were master improvisers. Yes. I didn't make that up. No, no That's I agree with you on that. That's an absolute fact. That is they, they never played the same thing twice. And, and the more they play, the more they want to impress, you know, the high My favorite about Baroque music the... is that. Pretty much yeah. all those great and solos so, were my time to shine. I agree. Yeah. So, 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 the, so the argument is, if those composers were alive today, what would they be using? Absolutely everything that is available to them. Just the same way as they did back then in 17, 1800, 1900, turn of the century into the very present. That's what they would be using. And so I don't, you know, I don't see such a, a huge uh, difference. Now, the language of classical and jazz are very different. But the, but the mechanics of it is still based upon Western harmony unless you want to go into world music, then it's a different kind of conversation, but it still comes back to traditional Western harmony, whatever that is or whatever that means. And I don't even really use those, those kind of terms, but you know, for all the intellectual people out there who, who feel the need to do this, yes, we can have many conversations about this and, and I'm perfectly fine with it. In the end, it is the music that matters. And, and, and honestly, when it gets right down to it, um, you either like it or you don't. You know, it's kind of like when you meet somebody. Yeah, when you meet somebody for the first time, you have already made a series of, of decisions. So, yeah, yes. And then, and then if you decide to go left or right... You can explore more of those things, and if you're lucky, those assessments will change. Maybe they will become highlighted. Maybe they will evolve into something better. Maybe they won't. But if you don't ever, if you never go through the process, then you'll never know what you actually you don't like, and and the assumptions that we make about classical and jazz are no different than the assumptions we make when we meet people. If you're black or if you're white, if you're male, if you're female, if you're neither, you know, we have, we are built with biases that is just part of human nature. We cannot get around this. It does not mean that we have to live with them and accept that we should be able to feel comfortable enough to challenge our own thoughts and feelings uh, towards anything. And, and hopefully that will lead us to 
a better understanding. No, I agree. You know? So, Joel, um, there, one other question, because yes. we're running out of time. This is another thing I personally just want to know. How did you end up working with Fergie? It was by accident. Oh. Once again. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was by accident. Um, she won the Billboard uh, Grammy uh, uh, Woman of the Year award, and I was working with um, another Grammy winner of the Brooklyn Youth Chorus. I was their principal arranger and orchestrator for several years, and wrote dozens of dozens of pieces for them utilizing jazzical and all kinds of things mm-hmm. um they called me and said um you know we've been asked to to create something for fergie um and we know that that you can do this so would you join us in this and so i wrote this series of of, of beautiful pieces and and uh we premiered it for her uh in new york and she was such a gracious person oh my god she was so wonderful one of the nicest people you would ever meet she practically broke down on stage and 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 cried and said oh my god this is so beautiful and and the choir was so great and for me that's all i needed to know uh because you know that means i did i did what i was supposed to do and then uh, a little bit after that, you know, then the mobs descended upon her, the bodyguards came out. But my daughter, who is gorgeous and very young, she was running around and, and Fergie looked down and said, who is this beautiful child? And I said, ah, oh, Fergie, that's my daughter. Um, and uh, and she said, oh my God, can I take a picture with her? And I was like, yes, of course you can take a picture. And that's how that's how it started. Um, <laughs> just unusual things, and yet they are true like the day okay. I was born. Am I allowed to ask this time what song it was? Uh, Big Girls Don't Cry. Are you kidding me? I was working on that, yeah. Okay, you know, the, so the, yeah. The, the the truth the truth is is that you know it's it's music um it's because of all the things that i do that have brought me to very unusual places in life and um and i'm really grateful um because you know i never thought 40 years later that the music I do and that the things, you know, that I'm interested in have some relevancy and that people really enjoy it. But I've learned to trust that a lot more as I've gotten older. And 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 for that, I'm eternally blessed. I mean, in a way that, you know, every day I get on Facebook and I do my morning music thing and, and it's called Wake Up with with you know with jazzical and it'll just be a two-minute thing that i sat down it's too bad i didn't have my piano in tune these all could have become you know recordings in and of themselves but i i do them because i just want to share the beauty and the power and the joy of music i mean you can never get enough of this and i don't know who it's going to touch but apparently it's touching somebody and that's good enough. Um, I hope I'll, to earn a Grammy of my own. Maybe it'll be with Jasko Komitas. 
Um, but I will always go with the journey because the journey is what brings me to all these cool things that just simply would not have happened had I just stayed in my practice room and, and just done the usual banal things that musicians do. Okay, well, that was very, I don't know. But <laughs> can you tell people your social media, your website, where to find you, et cetera? Sure. Um, uh, jazzical.com, J-A-Z-Z-I-C-A-L. You can find me on Facebook um, under Jazzical. Um, Instagram under Jazzical Bentley uh, because my ride is so good um, and Jazzical Comitas and and basically it's really not that hard to find me um, especially on Facebook because I have 5,000 friends there and and then I really know them I mean if you ask them how do you know Joel Martin they'll have a very very long story to tell uh, because we're connected this way, and so Facebook is that way that people can actually reach out to me and and get a real live human being. And the way I am now is the way I am in general. You know, we try to be kind, we try to be honest, we try to be truthful. You know, we keep it. I keep it real. You know, I'm never going to just just front and and not be a real person, a real spirit. It's something that is very much needed in the world. And I don't hide behind um, social media. Um, I, I live in it. And that's just an extension of my real life. So you can find me in all these places. Uh, there's lots of concerts this year. I'm going to Armenia for three weeks. I'm playing, uh, headlining a piano summit at the Little Island uh, in New York. Uh, let's see, uh, I have a big uh, California tour coming up. And I'm just going to take this music wherever it's, wherever it's supposed to go. Uh, hopefully right to the Grammy Awards. Hopefully. Well, sir, it's been different, I must say. <laughs> I enjoyed it. <laughs> Well, I enjoyed talking with you, and thank you for being awfully kind to put up with me. Okay, everyone, this is Leanna from Hip Hop Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>